Good evening. Get the the privilege and the the blessing to bring God's word with you this evening. Um, my lack of technical skills is going to show probably in a moment, so I apologize for that. But uh, I have a handful of verses that I'll be uh, referring to. So if you got a pen or you want to write them down for later, then um, they may or may not be visible for the screen. <laughs> From what I hear, but for tonight we're going to be going to what's probably a pretty familiar passage of scripture story, I think, for a lot of us, and that's uh, from First Kings chapter 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And so, if you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to be looking at First Kings 18, 17 through 40, but we'll we'll read it a little bit at a time as we make our way through the through the the text there. So. Once you find that, uh, find it in your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind to stand with me, if you are able, out of reverence to God and his word. We'll start by just reading verses um, 17 through 20, and then as I said, we'll, we'll read the rest as we make our way through the, uh, through the story there. All right, we'll seeing that most of you are standing. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17, the word of the Lord reads, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to him one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to come together this evening to worship you, Lord, and in song and praise and prayer, Lord, and now by the opening of your word, Lord. We we pray as we look to it tonight, this ancient story, Lord, that you've preserved for all these years for your people. Um, We pray, Lord, that you would, through it, do the work that only you could do, that you would Open our hearts and our minds to uh, just to see your glory in it, Lord, to see how glorious you are and to, to learn from you through it, Lord. Um, Lord, only you know what we need. You know our, our hearts and uh, you, need the, you know the need of our hearts tonight, whether it be encouragement, conviction, or, or whatever we may need, Lord. May you do that work which only you can do this evening and we'll give you the praise for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat there. So there's, a, there's an old line from an old Western movie that I'm sure probably most of us have heard at one point or another in our lives. Um, probably, I would imagine, many of us have even said the line ourselves. Maybe you've walked into, in some silly fashion, you've walked into the room with your, you know, your finger pistols at your side, and you walk into the room and you say it, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. You know, and this, this old saying, it's, it's been used in silly and serious ways, but it, it conveys an idea or a way of thinking, really, that's, that's really normative and, and generally understood and relatable. I think at least in our, in our culture, uh, we get the, what this line, this, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, what this is conveying. It's the idea there, it's, it's conveying the idea that there can only be one number one. You know, there can only be one champion, one, one, one man that wins the fight, you know, one king of the hill, one victor in the cosmic battle of uh, good versus evil. Uh, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. This idea means there's no room for two to thrive, that, that we can't exist side by side. And so typically there's, there's going to be a fight and to the, the victor goes the spoil and to the victor goes the throne. This saying, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, it means to use the... Uh, uh, well, a saying or a, uh, the means of another of, of days gone by, there's, there's going to be a duel to the death, you know? There's going to be a fight. And this, this duel, actually, the, the idea of a duel, this really captures very well what we're going to see, I think, in our text. And there's some, some interesting facts which I found uh, about the duel, the practice of a duel. This is a, I, I was actually blown away that this was actually true and written down, but there's some there's some uh, information, that's, uh, some facts that are about the historical practice of a duel that is, uh, I think we might make some connections if you, if you keep these things in mind as we go through the story today. Uh, an article in the Smithsonian said that duels, it said, quote, duels after all were fought in defense of what the law could not defend, a gentleman's sense of personal honor. And so a duel 
was fought in order to uh, defend honor, personal honor. There was another article that tells about the rules for a duel. So apparently there actually was a, a code in Ireland in the 18th century that was written up concerning the practice of a, a duel. And it, it was pretty interesting. It, it, it said this. It said, in a typical duel, each party acted through a second. The second's duty, above all, was to try to reconcile the parties without violence. An offended party sent a challenge through a second, and if the recipient apologized, the matter usually ended. If he elected to fight, the recipient chose the weapons and the time and the place of the encounter. Up until combat began, apologies could be given, and the duel stopped. After combat began, it could be stopped at any point after honor had been satisfied. It's pretty interesting. You know, keep these things in mind, I think, and uh, you might make some connections as we begin to look at our text uh, this evening here in 1 Kings 18. Now, here in our, in our text here that we're going to read through, we're, we're confronted with a really a great picture, at least to some extent, of these very same con- concepts here. Honor has been offended and it must be restored. And to do this, there will be a, quote-unquote, duel to the death, so to speak, between the Lord of heaven and earth and the idol gods of the world. Uh, there can only be one victor. You know, they can't coexist. The world isn't big enough for the two of them. And the people, as they stand there, as we'll see, acting as both participants and spectators at the same time, they must choose a side. Who will they serve? There's only room for one Lord, for one master. A line has to be drawn in the sand because our hearts just aren't big enough for the two of them. There can only be one Lord, one God, one true, uh, one true king. Now, as we go through the story here, and again, we'll read through it as we, as we go, we're going to see first how, how honor, how God's honor has been offended. We'll see the people being questioned concerning their allegiance. Uh, a challenge is proposed. The rules are accepted. And we'll see the outworking of the challenge, the, the, the duel, if you will, uh, work its way out. And in the end, what we find is a, uh, or what we'll see is a decisive victory and the response of the people. And as we, as we look to all of this, really, as, a, as great of a story as it is, and it's you know, it's exciting and it's, it's moving and it's a wonderful story. As much as that is true, ultimately we're drawn to the greater duel uh, and a greater victory in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we'll get to. So let's start here with uh, the beginning with what we just read and see how honor has been offended as we see this, this rise of the idol gods, we might say. And we'll refer to what we read there in verse 17 through 20. You see this entire episode as we'll get going here, is set up under a background of offense towards God. You know, the people, uh, God's people have dishonored him by worshiping and serving the idol gods of the nations. And really to get a, a grasp of the gravity of that, of the situation that's at the point to which they've come here, uh, we need to do a little historical reflection uh, just to see where the people are. Uh, in the Exodus, if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, when God saves his people out of Egypt, he, he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, and there he enters into covenant with them, that he would be their God, he would be their king, he would be the one to provide for them and to protect them and to lead them and to fight their battles for them. He would be their God and their king. And he gives them the law to to govern their way of life, and he begins by giving what we know of, of course, as the Ten Commandments. And he's very explicit concerning their manner of worship, uh, their manner and their practice of of worship. In Exodus 20, verse 3 through 6, he Begins, God begins by saying, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And you can actually end right there. You see, this would be the foundation, the, uh, the bedrock of their entire relationship with the one true and living God. He demands the exclusive, exclusive worship of his people. However, their entire history would be characterized by infidelity. Of, of course, uh, there would be times of repentance. There would be times of faithfulness. There would be some great and godly individuals who would stand out. But in large part, by and large, they would forsake the command of the Lord to worship and serve him alone in the covenant faithfulness that he demands. And, you know, we can make a, a bit of a fast track through their, uh, Israel's history from the time of the Exodus to the time of our, our text here by just kind of summarizing a few points uh, in terms to where they are in their faithfulness to the Lord here. You see, after, after the Exodus, after being saved out of Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai and all, after 
then next spending years in the wilderness, wandering through the wilderness there uh, because of their sin, God finally brought the people into the land he had promised, and he does so under the leadership of Joshua. And God had told them when they were to, when they came into the land, that they were to completely conquer the inhabiting nations, that they were to, uh, that they were to drive them out completely, and that they were to uh, really annihilate any remnants of their idolatrous worship practices. And of course, they fail to do this, and they they begin to worship and serve the the gods of the nations. And we we get a bit of a summary of that in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now we fast forward through the period of the judges and we come to the last judge, Samuel. And at this time, the people go even further in their dishonoring God and that they demand a human king to rule over them. I think that that might sound a little bit, um, a little odd or it might sound a little maybe odd, I guess, to think that 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 is worse or that's going further in demanding a human king as to bowing before these idol gods. But, you know, if you go back and you think about it, it may not seem as much of a overt offense, but God was to be their God and their king. They, weren't, they were to be different than the nations and that God was their king. They didn't need a human king to rule over them. And, and now here they are after years of compromise and infidelity, you know, intermixing with the nations and their practices. Now they're demanding a king, a human king, so as to be like the nations around them. And we read this in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 8. We get a picture of that. It says, now, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Well, God goes, they do go ahead. God allows, I suppose, the kingship to be established under Saul, the first human king, and he, of course, ends up being a a really a horrible king. Altogether, However, God does end up choosing a, a king for himself afterwards, David, one who, though not perfect, of course, like any person, but he's one who loves and serves the Lord. Uh, the kingdom is united. It seems to prosper under David until the death of his son Solomon, at which that time the, the, the kingdom divides into the northern and the southern uh, kingdoms of Israel and Judah, respectively. Now, uh, the dividing of the kingdom, it was foretold to Solomon that it would occur under the rule of his own son, and that one of his servants, Jeroboam, would rule over the northern kingdom. That's First Kings 11, if you'd like to read that for yourself. But that's precisely what happens after Solomon dies. Now, this Jeroboam is described as a, a, a really an extremely wicked king, and it's, it's to him and his wickedness that Ahab, the, the one who's king in our, at the time of our text, is compared to. Uh, Jeroboam led the people astray into worshiping idols. He set up false worship practices, and he, he led the people, we're told, into very great sin before the Lord. You can read that in 1 Kings 12, if you go back there and look. And, and Ahab, who comes into confrontation with Elijah here in our text, is described as really the most wicked of Israel's kings. We get that in 1 Kings 16, 30 through 33. If you flip a page back, you can you can read that. It says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And it's this wicked King Ahab here that Elijah, uh, that is confronted by Elijah here that we read in our text there in verses 17 18. When Elijah saw, or when, excuse me, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Baals. You see, at this point that we find ourselves in the text, 
we find ourselves set in a background of centuries of unfaithfulness, of dishonor, and of offense toward the Lord who had rescued them and had covenanted with them. Uh, they have forsaken their God by worshiping and serving the idol gods of the world, and honor must be restored. You see that uh, God will not share his glory with another. Now, there's another, before we get into the, the main part of the text, there's, there's, there's another thing that, that forms a, a backdrop to the story uh, that's very important, but this is set more in a, a me, an immediate context rather than the historical that we've been talking about here. Um, and this is the, the drought that was greatly affecting the land of Israel. And this, this drought, again, it's very, it's very important, you'll see, as we make our way through this story in, in at least a couple of ways. Uh, one is the drought is proclaimed by the prophet Elijah. You can read that in 17.1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You see, in light of the sin of the people, that history of offense, you know, this, this history of offense and dishonor that we've, that we've spoken about here, this drought, you can look at this drought and you can see this as really a picture of divine judgment. You know, this is, it's, it's a tangible consequence uh, for their sin. It, it's God giving judgment, if you will, for the sin of the people. And we shouldn't take it lightly the severity of a drought to these people. You know, I was thinking about this, that I think for my whole life, I can't remember not hearing in California that we haven't been in a drought, but I've never been able to, or never not been able to go into the house and turn on the water faucet or turn on the hose and out comes water, but not so. You know, for these people, the, the rains, that's life for them. You know, we shouldn't take it as just a, you know, a light thing. This, this should really get their attention, especially, especially as they associate rain and the water uh, having enough or the lack of, uh, they associate that with the gods. Well, secondly, it's not only a picture of d- divine judgment against the people for their sins, but this is also a picture of divine judgment over the idol gods that they were worshiping. You see, Baal was the storm god. He was the one responsible for the rains and for the fertility of the earth. And so for the Lord to cause a drought was not simply just a judgment against the people. This is a a direct judgment against the false god that they were worshiping here. The Lord, Yahweh, he is the only sovereign over the elements. And you hear this in Elijah's words when he when he says this to, uh, to Ahab as the Lord, as, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, as he lives before whom I stand, there will be no rain. It's not up to Baal. Yahweh is the only one who is sovereign over the elements. And, and this really brings up the third point, I suppose, on this, is that, is that everything surrounding this drought and everything leading up to the main event of our text that we're going to get to here, really everything is a display of the sovereignty of God. And we see this in all the events if you were to read through chapter 17 and 18. And we'll come back to this actually at the end as well. But we can kind of summarize it and you can read it for yourself if you'd like. But we see, number one, he's, again, he's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the elements. Only this God, only the true and living God can give rain or provide rain or withhold rain. We see that he's sovereign over creatures. When, when the drought uh, comes, he, he commands the ravens to provide for Elijah by the brook. In 17.4, it says, God says, I have commanded the ravens to feed you. He's sovereign over people, which is pictured in the widow of Zarephath. In 17.9, he says, when the brook dries up and God tells him, go into this town, and I, he says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. He's sovereign over life and death. When the widow's son dies in 17, 17 through 24, Elijah prays to the Lord to revive him, and, and God does so and brings the, the, man, the woman's son back to life. He's sovereign again over nature and the life events of creation. We see that through just the unfolding of the drought and the famine and everything that's occurring. God is withholding the rain, and, and God, he is sovereign over the quote-unquote gods of the world, as we're going to see as we move through the text even more. You see, again, God's honor, God's glory has been offended through the wickedness of the people, and it must be restored. You know, God sends this drought by the word of his prophet as a display of judgment against the people for their sin, as a display of judgment against their idol gods, and a, as a display of his complete sovereignty as the one true Lord of heaven and earth. Elijah comes to, or Ahab, excuse me, comes to Elijah is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. 
So now as the people would gather upon the mountain there, their, their sin would be exposed and their allegiance then would be challenged. So let's, let's continue reading here, verses 21 and 22, as we see their devotion question. In, in whom does your allegiance lie, we may say. So verses 21 and 22 of chapter 18, it says, And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So we find ourselves here gathered upon the mount, if you will. Elijah, he stands alone as the true prophet, the one who will question and challenge the people. The false prophets are assembled together, ready to take on whatever challenge might come their way. And the people, uh, well, there they are in the middle. They're called upon to make their allegiance known. To what God will you give glory and honor? Well, Elijah's words to the people, they, they really cut straight to the heart, I think we could say, of the problem being addressed in the text. And so let's take a, a moment or two just to explore the implications of what he's, what he's saying there. How long... Will you go limping between two different opinions? The CSB puts it, I believe, how long will you waver between these different opinions or different options? And the idea here might be comparable to what, what we mean when we say something like someone is sitting on the fence, right? And when we say that, when we say something like, oh, they're just, they're on the fence, you're sitting on the fence, I'm sitting on the fence. When we say that, the implication is that the one who's sitting on the fence is unwilling to make a definitive choice or decision between two opposing options here. And in the context of, our, of the scriptures here, the two opposing opinions that Elijah is speaking about is clear. There's no ambiguity around it. He states it uh, explicitly. He says, if the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see, it's a question of their faith and their worship and whether their allegiance would be given to the God of heaven, the only true and living God who had covenanted with them as their God and king, or would they forsake him, continue to forsake him in serving these idol gods. Now, there's a, a concept that's implied here, I believe, that really explains how the people are living in regard to their devotion to God. And that's, that's the idea of syncretism. And, and I'll explain that, but to, uh, well, just to, to, to understand, let me just maybe pose a question here. Uh, had the people Fully, had the people completely abandoned the Lord for the worship of Baal? You know, had they wholeheartedly, completely abandoned the worship of God for Baal? And I, I think the answer, the answer, it's, it's tricky. It's a little complicated because it's, it's no, but it's yes. And I'll explain as we go here. You see, it appears that though we, you know, we read statements that say the people abandoned the Lord to worship other gods. Uh, Judges 2.12, we read that, 1 Kings 18 and 18. Uh, that's what it says. It, it, though it appears that way, that they had actually, uh, but what it really seems to, um, well, if we look at what they're doing here, it seems that they had actually attempted a form of what we would call syncretistic worship. And that means that they're, they're not just forsaking God altogether. We're not worshiping you, God. You know, we, we don't believe you. We don't, you know, you're, this is whatever it is. We're out of here. We've had enough of you. Rather, it's their conjoining the worship of God, both God and Baal together. Uh, some have said, whether it's true or not, but some have made the point that uh, maybe they were trying to cover all their bases, you know? Um, something similar maybe to in Acts 17, you know, when Paul goes into Athens and there's all the idols to the different gods and there's the idol to the unknown God. And, well, let's just cover all our bases because, you know, yeah, we, we, we serve and we worship God, Yahweh, and but there's this other God here in the land, Baal. Well, we, don't, we want to cover all our base, whether that's true or not. The point is, is what it seems to be is that they were conjoining the worship of the two, perhaps in some way together. But you see, the problem here, the problem here is that God has demanded pure and exclusive worship on the part of his people. And so you cannot mix the worship of, of the Lord with any other God, with any other small g, quote-unquote, God. Both the Old and the New Testaments really shed light on that, on that fact. Exodus 23 through 6, what we read, says very explicitly not to worship, not to bow down before any other gods or idols. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, jealous for his own glory, jealous for his name, passionate for, 
for his glorious name. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus in Luke 4.8, when he's being tempted and Satan tells him, well, just bow down before me, he says, quoting Deuteronomy 6, he says, it is written, you shall worship the, the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's actually a quote referring to Deuteronomy 6.13-15 through 15, where it says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall fear, and by his name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. You see, the reality is that there's, there's one Lord, there's one God who is the creator and ruler over all, and this God, being the only true living God, both demands and he deserves exclusive worship. And so to deny him such, to deny him pure and, and exclusive worship is to bring great offense and dishonor to him. You see, the, the offense doesn't just come by forsaking him altogether in the sense of a, uh, a refusal to honor him as the Lord alone, perhaps maybe we can compare that to the, to the atheist that would just say, oh, that's a fairy tale, you know, we don't believe in this God, this God's not real. The offense doesn't only come by just completely, utterly forsaking and saying, well, I don't believe in this God. Uh, you see, but it also, it comes, the offense comes through any type of this syncretistic worship here. Uh, the worshiping God and, as he's made clear by his word, he will not share his glory with another. And you see the problem here then is that the people they truly had forsaken the Lord altogether. Because to not give him the full allegiance and devotion that he deserves and demands, you know, displayed through pure and exclusive worship, to not do that is to not give him the worship that he deserves. So the reality is is that you know as soon as they as soon as they attempt to mix or to share or to conjoin the worship and the glory due God alone with anything else, they were in reality forsaking him altogether. And Elijah asks, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, follow him alone, wholeheartedly, complete devotion. But if not, if Baal is God, follow him. Quit sitting on the fence. Make a decision. Who are you going to serve? There's, there's only room for one God. This this town ain't big enough for the both of them. You can only have one. Choose this day whom you will serve. You know, a, a story like this, I think, just to kind of pause for a second, I think a story like this, you know, it, it really can hit home because, you know, we, we can begin to realize that I think that we can be very, we can very easily be guilty of the same thing in many ways, attempting our own form of this syncretistic worship. I mean, sure, we might not be bowing before a, a physical idol or sacrificing on some altar, uh, but we do split our allegiance and our devotion. We do share our devotions many times. We do offer much of the time, the thoughts, the attention, which ought to be for the Lord alone. We do share that with other things. We do share our hearts. We look to please and, and to appease many peoples and many things in the place of the Lord. And we shouldn't presume that that this is any different than what the people here are doing, wavering between two opinions when God has clearly demanded the exclusive worship of his people. You know, I think we get a little, uh, kind of a, uh, came to mind, uh, maybe a contemporary picture, or we can make it a contemporary picture, is Luke 9, 57 through 62, that part of the scriptures which are often understood of speaking of the cost of following Christ there, in, in essence, which is, full devotion to him, of course, but you can write that down and read it, or maybe you know it, but that's where Jesus is walking along the, the road, you know, and, and three people, three would-be followers call out to him, and what the first says, you know, hey, I'll follow you, Lord, and he says, well, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, you know, I mean, well, following me, you know, it doesn't guarantee maybe the pleasures of the world, there's a potential to lose and to give up, and there's no promises of a uh, you know, the pleasures of the world here. If you're going to follow after me, you're going to follow after me. The other comes and says, uh, you know, Lord, I'll follow you, but uh, let me go first bury my father. And, you know, we don't have to go into it, but his father wasn't dead at the time. And it was just, again, another excuse. Jesus, it sounds cold if you don't understand the, the actual context, perhaps, but he says, let the dead bury their, their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. And, and last one comes along and says, uh, 
you know, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me just go say goodbye to everybody at home, basically. And Jesus says, you know, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And, and the picture there, because we probably don't plow, but the picture is when you put your hand to the plow, you have to look where you're going, you know, so you plow straight ahead. And if you're constantly looking back, you know, you're all over the place and you're a mess. And he, he says, if you put your hand to the plow and, and you're constantly looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And it's kind of the same thing, I think, you know. Quit wavering between two opinions. Either you are for the Lord or you are not. There's no mixing of the two. There's no sharing of devotions. Um, Choose this day whom you will serve. Quit sitting on the fence and serve the Lord, is what he's saying, I think. You know, here Elijah confronts the people. You know, in our text, he's he's challenging the people to to repent, to renew their allegiance to the God of heaven. He's telling them, essentially, you've sinned greatly. You've You've dishonored and offended the Lord. Now, now repent and turn back. You know, cast down those false idols. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart. But what we read at the end of verse 20 there is it says, and the people did not answer him a word, unwilling to make a definitive decision. They, they continue to limp and to waver between the two opinions. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Well, let's, uh, let's continue on with the story here in verses 23 and 24 as we see the, uh, the challenge proposed here, the uh, the duel to the death, if you will. Verse 23, it says, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it, and I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. It is well spoken. Well, since the people are unwilling to repent and turn to the Lord, this challenge is proposed to settle the matter. Who is the true God? Who is the true sovereign? Who is the one worthy of praise and worship? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And the challenge, we'll have two altars, two sacrifices. We'll call out to our gods and the one who answers by fire while he is God. Now, all the details around here are important, especially in light of the drought and the fact that the people understood Baal as the storm god. You see, as the storm god, he is the one who sends fire and rain and the lightning, the answer by fire. And so you know, a challenge like this should be no problem for such a god, right? Sacrifice an offering also to the gods in order to appease them and gain their favor. This is a normal pattern of, of life and worship to them. Again, this challenge presents no problem. You know, they would offer up a sacrifice to Baal. He, being the god of rain and fire, would have no problem responding to their request. However, don't forget that these same details are descriptive of the God of the Bible. In the Bible, you know, the one who's God, the God of the Bible, excuse me, is the one whose presence is often associated with fire, the one who demands sacrifice and offering and who, who often shows his acceptance and pleasure in them by consuming them with fire. And, you know, if you think about it this way, taking into consideration especially that God has been demonstrating his sovereignty over the idol gods by sending the drought, well, it really seems like this all might be a big setup, you know. It's a trap, so to say, so to speak. In fact, even Elijah, as he begin, he'll begin to taunt the prophets of Baal there and in a little bit as the challenge proceeds, it seems that even now he's taunting them with his words in verse 24. He says, he says you call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, there's the word for God there, the first time when he refers to Baal, it's just a little bit of a different form than the other two, I believe, if I've got my Hebrew correct. <laughs> but, uh, uh, the first is not used to refer to the God of the Bible, whereas the latter are. And, and so in essence, what he's saying is, hey, you go ahead and call out to your God. Okay, I'll call out to Yahweh and the God who answers, well, he's God. You know, it's as though he's already taunting them, already preparing them for what's going to happen here. And you, you know, we know this, if we know the end of the story, I guess, already, even now, I think we could say that it's just not going to be pretty here. You know, they're playing right into his hand. He is the Lord. He will not share his glory with another. This world just ain't big enough for the both of them. Well, something has to be said here, at least a little bit, about the people's response at the end of verse 24. Uh, the, the rules, the challenge are presented there, and it says, and all the people answered, it is well spoken. You know, if we go back to what we read a moment ago in verse 21, 
when Elijah had confronted them uh, on their devotion, it said that the people did not answer him uh, a word. You know, at that point, they were unwilling to make a decision as to whom they would serve. And here, in light of this competition for the gods to prove themselves, they, they really seem to think it's a grand idea. Hey, it's well spoken. You know, maybe they assumed that they were safe this way. You know, maybe this way without definitively choosing sides, whichever God came out victorious, you know, they'd still be on the winning side. Yeah, we're not offending either. Uh, the gods can battle this out between themselves. Uh, we love and serve them both. However, you see, the, uh, the agreement of the people here to the terms of the challenge, it reveals much about their hearts because they never should have agreed to this in the first place as if there is ever a decision to be made about which God deserves their glory and the worship. You see, the bottom line is that there is only one God who is a God of gods, and he alone deserves the honor and the glory and praise. And so you can see, you can see, hopefully, the danger in this syncretistic worship that they had been so, you know, involved in, how much it polluted their hearts and their minds to, to thinking that somehow they were on the outside here, that they were spectators as the gods were battling it out, and this was all about the gods competing for ultimacy as they would prove themselves. However, that, that's simply not the case. Because the people here, they are as much a participant as Elijah, as the God of heaven, as the so-called gods of the world. I, I mean, sure, the Lord will have victory over the idol god, but be certain the hearts of the people are just as much on trial as the idol god that they worshipped. Paul House makes a, a great comment on this in his commentary, and he says, only Elijah and, ironically, the prophets of Baal have any conviction. He said, both Elijah and his counterparts believe their God to be the solution to Israel's problems. Elijah is supremely confident that there is no God but Yahweh, and at least the prophets of Baal do not lack conviction. What a contradiction between the hearts of these prophets and the hearts of God's people as they stood there. At least they had the conviction. At least they believed their God would answer uh, the prayers. Well, let's continue on here and see as the challenge proceeds. Uh, part one, Baal in this corner. Let's see, verses 25 through 29. It says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention." As the, as the challenge proceeds there, the prophets of Baal prepare their offering. They lay it upon the altar and they begin to call upon their God to prove himself by sending fire and consuming the sacrifice. However, the more they cry, the more desperately that they try to gain his attention, there's, there's no answer. But how could there ever be an answer? Baal is an idol God. He's a creation of the created and thus he has no voice and he has no power. Listen to what the scriptures say about the idol gods of the nations. Jeremiah 10, 2-5 says, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Psalm 115, 4-8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Well, as the day goes on and no one answers, Elijah begins to taunt them, right? Maybe they need to try harder to get his attention, but nothing works. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, he's a wonderful uh, commentator, he, he says, Elijah's reasoning there, for he is a god, 
He says, it may sound strange to us, but it wouldn't to a pagan. In paganism, the gods and goddesses engaged in the whole gamut of activities we call human. Elijah adopts this perspective in order to ridicule it. When, as in paganism, God is made in the image of man, nothing is more natural than regular divine sleep. You see, the problem is that when creatures create an idol god, the god is inevitably bound to the limitation of the creature. We cannot go too far from ourselves, nor, nor do we really even want to when we create a God after our own image or one that suits our desires. So then, it's not irrational at all from that kind of a vantage point to assume that Baal could be busy with any number of things, even taking a nap. We'll compare this to the God of the Bible. Psalm 121, 1 through 4, for one, says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Uh, The God of the Bible is the transcendent God. He's the creator who is completely distinct from his creation. He has no limitations. We've been made in his image, not vice versa. And so he's not bound to any limitations that we creatures would experience. He's, He's far beyond. He's distinct. He's other. He's other. He's far beyond the work of his hands. And so he is incomparable to his creation. He transcends his creation. Well, they go on and on throughout the day, visiting every extreme practice to try to garner their God's attention, but to no avail. In verse 29, it proclaims really the ultimate end of seeking an idol God, one made after our own image and likeness. It says, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Well, let's see as the challenge continues there. Part two with the God of heaven and earth, verse 30 through 37, or, yes, verse 30 through 37. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering in the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Well, as we move toward the the climax here, uh, Elijah, he now will prepare the the offering, and he'll call out to the Lord, and really, I, I think we can... Well, I want to mention at least maybe just three things real quick that I, that I believe we can see here in Elijah's actions and his words here. We begin by seeing, uh, well, we began, excuse me, by seeing again that, that God's honor had been offended, right? A primary backdrop to the story was that of the idolatrous worship of God's people. And so, as we said, honor must be restored. God will not share his glory with another. And I, I think this is what we see occurring in Elijah's actions. You see, he, he restores, he literally heals the altar of the Lord. He builds the altar in the name of the Lord with the 12 stones after the 12 tribes of, Eli- of Israel. You see, Elijah would offer a proper sacrifice, one worthy of the God of heaven. At the heart of God's prophet here was to glorify the one true and living God, to bring him honor uh, to him and to him alone. And then we see also that Elijah here, he's, he's acting in complete faith in the sovereignty of God here. He prepares the offering in a way that would be completely impossible to be consumed apart from the act, from an act of God. He, he saturates not only the offering, but he saturates the wood and even the ground around it. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing picture of the heart of faith of Elijah. But Elijah knows the God in whom he believes. He knows that he will act for uh, the glory of his great name and for the salvation of his people. And then we see further not only his dependence on God, but we see, I think, his, his purpose in the Lord being glorified in both judgment judgment. And salvation, and we see this, I think, in his prayer. You see, at this point, uh, at this point, 
This has nothing about proving himself, uh, or probably at the least in the mind of the prophet, it has nothing about you know, beating the other god or, or anything uh, to that extent. His prayer is that God would make his great name known and that he, that he is the only true and living God in Israel and that he would grant his people repentance. You see, it's, it's, it's really an amazing picture, you know, if you stop and think about it here. It's a beautiful picture of a heart for the Lord, a beautiful picture of faith in God and love for God's people here. And if, if God so answers, you know, if God answers the prayer of his prophet here, among other things, what an amazing demonstration of grace towards such an undeserving people, right? So how does it end? Well, let's see. Let's see the response. It's a dual response. God answers and the people respond in verse 38 through 41. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. You see, we, we read that the fire of the Lord comes and it consumes not only the sacrifice, it, it consumes the offering, the wood, it, it even consumes the, the stones in the water there. It's, it's a, really a marvelous answer to Elijah's prayer and it's a glorious display of power by the sovereign God. Uh, here, we can really, uh, I think at this point and looking at this, we can draw this all to conclusion under four, maybe four points real quick here. First, the fire of the Lord implies the acceptance of the offering. God has heard Elijah's prayer. He's accepted his worship. This isn't the first time, it's not the only time that we see this occurring in Scripture. It's, a, it, it's really interesting, Leviticus 9.24, if you write that down and go read it later. There we see the fire of the Lord consuming Aaron's offering, which seems to imply a, a similar implication, the acceptance of, offering and, of, of his offering and worship. And very interestingly, we see a similar response by the people there as we do in our, our text. You see, the Lord, the true God, accepts the pure offering and worship of his people, and his people respond in worship and adoration of their God. Second, it seems to be an indication of, or at least a means of, reconciliation. This is, this is grace on display, I think you could say. You see, it's, it's by the means of right worship, as God accepts the sacrifice, that he is inviting the rebellious people back into communion with himself. I think that's beautiful, but I'll have to credit Davis again for that because he said it. And this is what he actually said. He said, uh, in light of its Old Testament parallels, the miraculous fire shows that Yahweh has accepted Elijah's sacrifice. Is this not Israel's hope? Does this not hint to Israel that there's a way back? How? Via the means of grace and reconciliation Yahweh has already provided by way of the old rugged altar. Is it too wild to think that God is saying to Israel, you have an altar, a place of atonement where I'll receive you? If this is so, then the Carmel contest proves not only that Yahweh is truly God, but that he is truly gracious. He's not only the real God, but he's the reconciling God. Yahweh's fire is both an overt proof and a subtle invitation. How beautiful, huh? Well, kind of along those same lines, and as a third point, I suppose, is that not only... uh, Similar to what he said, not only is this a show of grace, but, but if we go a little bit further, I think, we can say that, more importantly, this is a display of sovereign grace. In Elijah's prayer, if you go back and we were to look at that in verse 37, you can read that. He prayed that God would answer so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, since the Lord answers the prophet's prayer, I, I believe we can assume that the prayer is answer. In other words, that the Lord is in fact turning the hearts of the people back to him. You see from the text as well as uh, through the scriptures as we, as we read, we understand that the, the turning of the heart implies repentance, but, but that's really not the point that I, I really want to get across here. More importantly, I, I think what's going on here is the fact that it is a sovereign act of God in granting repentance and changing the heart of his people. And I, I believe the, te- the language of the text really indicates that that's the case. You see, we already know, as we've already talked about, that God has been displaying his sovereignty in a variety of ways leading up to this. The whole, 
the whole story is just saturated with the sovereignty of God throughout it. Um, and one of the ways that was showing his sovereignty over people. And here, it is by the sovereign act of God, a sovereign act of his own loving grace, that he grants repentance, leading to reconciliation with a sinful and undeserving people. It's, it's not only, I think, a picture just simply of grace, but of sovereign grace of the Lord. And then uh, lastly, you know, the, we need to say, I suppose, is that the response of the Lord, it, it presents a decisive victory over the, the idol gods. It shows that he alone is worthy of worship and honor and, and praise. You know, it's, it's not the first time, nor will it be the last time, such a display of sovereignty and power would be manifest in so severely judging competing quote-unquote gods. In the Exodus, in the Exodus, as God was pouring out judgment against Egypt, we're told that he was not only pouring out judgment against the Egyptians, but he is executing judgment against their gods. You can read that in Exodus 12, 12. There in the, the judgments of the, uh, of the Exodus and the plagues and all, the Lord was decisively victorious, victorious over the gods of the nations as he redeemed, as he saved his people and brought them out to himself. And then all of these events, as we said at the beginning in, in the Exodus, as we just mentioned, Elijah on Mount Carmel, all of these things anticipate and they point to the greatest victory that the Lord would accomplish in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, Jesus, without question, accomplishes the greatest victory over our greatest enemies, sin and death, and over the idol God of this world, Satan. Colossians 2.5 says, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Speaking of Jesus and his work on the cross there, and his life, his death, and his resurrection. In John 12.31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, in the gospel, Jesus Christ leaves no question that he has once for all crushed the head of the serpent, that he has redeemed his people from the powers of darkness. He has, on our behalf, defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death. And the most beautiful demonstration of sovereign grace, he stands as our substitute, providing us his own righteousness, pouring out his life for the debt that our sin incurs. And, and perhaps even more amazing is the fact that we, we who because of our sin would esteem this so lightly, that we are provided the grace necessary to believe, uh, to see our need, and to be reconciled to the Lord. He gives us the, uh, the grace to see our need for, for his grace, <laughs> to, to believe it, and to be reconciled to him, and live for him, and, and, and to live wholeheartedly to him, giving him honor and glory and praise with all of our hearts. See, uh, the picture, as marvelous as a, as a story, as a interesting and exciting as it is, ultimately it points us to, to, to the, the greater victory in Jesus Christ and the gospel. So, I suppose, you know, the question would be, whom then will you serve? You know, if you're a Christian here and you're uh, splitting devotion, if you're sitting on the fence, if whatever you're considering, uh, I, I think the question applies here. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if not, you know, quit sitting on the fence. Draw a line in the sand. God deserves and God demands complete wholehearted devotion. Uh, he gave his life so that you can be reconciled to him. He gave his life so that you could live for him. If he would give his life for us, why would we not give our life to serve him with all of our, to bring honor and glory to the true king. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and pray.